transformation in trials. Welcome to Transformation in Trials. This is a podcast exploring all things transformational in clinical trials. Nothing is off limits on the show, and we will have guests from the whole spectrum of the clinical trials community. And we're your hosts, Ivana and Sam. Welcome to another episode of Transformation in Trials. Today in the studio with me, I have Boaz Adler. Hi, Boaz. Hi, Ivana. It's such a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. I am so excited about this episode. Now, uh, Boaz is a solutions engineer at Satel's software division, and we'll talk more about Satel uh, and their software later in the episode. Uh, but today we're going to focus on a super interesting topic, which is simulating studies at large scale to design for results. Uh, and before we really get into it, Boaz, could you tell us more, uh, what is trial simulation? Um, absolutely. Um, and I understand that um, maybe many of your listeners are not necessarily biostatisticians or in the business of designing clinical trials. So it's, a, I think, a really good uh, place to start. And what we mean by uh, trial simulation is, um, at least on Cytel's side, uh, we uh, utilize a, a technique called Monte Carlo simulation, which is a mm. risk analysis technique that is used to um, deal with uh, very complex, uncertain models. Um, and so instead of um, representing specific values within that model, it takes a range of values or um, what we call probability distributions to represent different possible uh, inputs into that model. In this case, what we're talking about is the model here is really that clinical trial design. So you can imagine when designing a specific clinical trial, there would be um, many different uh, inputs that go into that model and many possible uh, outcomes of that model. And so using Monte Carlo simulation is really very well suited uh, for this um, for this type of analysis. Uh, and then the last thing I would mention is that we um, use uh, computer power to calculate all of these different ranges, all of these different combinations of ranges um, to uh, get at what is the uh, most likely outcome in this case for a clinical trial. So that in a nutshell is Monte Carlo simulation. And Monte Carlo simulation, it's important to add, is uh, sort of the bread and butter of the industry when it comes to clinical trial design. And it is the type of simulation that is embedded in all of our software solutions here at Cytel. Mm, that's awesome. Uh, maybe a stupid question, but I'll ask it anyhow. What if you do not use simulation for planning your trial? What does that look like and where does that leave you? Yeah. Um, and, you know, early on, um, maybe a few, um, I don't know, decades ago, uh, it was completely acceptable to just use computation rather than simulation to design particular clinical trials. So when you think of your traditional trial where uh, you enroll patient into the study, you follow them for a certain period, you collect some data, and then you complete the study and read that data, kind of unblind that data, computation works just fine. What yeah. happens is as you make this model, this particular uh, trial, um, uh, more complex using uh, more um, advanced methods for adaptation of the study, say uh, adding an interim analysis to your study or considering re-estimating the sample size of your study mid-trial, that's when things become a lot more complicated. And at that, at that stage, computation is no longer a valid way to assess whether a trial will be successful or not. And that's when those simulations come in handy to help kind of predict the outcomes of your study including all of those adaptations. 
Mm. So this would be a way to make sure that we can make sound decisions before actually starting the trial, or do we also use it as we go? Uh, absolutely. So it is a way for us to make sound decisions uh, about the trial design itself. It also allows us to design trials that are more robust to that uh, ultimate range of possibilities of, say, your treatment effect or your enrollment rate. We know um, that there's a lot of uncertainty about what that um, true underlying treatment effect for a particular product would be. Um, and so uh, being able to design a trial that would perform well under more positive or more negative scenarios of that treatment effect uh, is really what we're aiming for. In terms of uh, during trial execution, we can use some of the software to uh, do what we call interim monitoring. So taking in the information uh, that was collected so far and using that to help predict the future of that trial as it is uh, ongoing. But the, I would say the majority of the work, at least that I do with clients, uh, is Monte Carlo simulation for trial design. So still in the design stage. Oh, that, that makes sense. Uh, and, and what do we model when we model a, a trial? Is it specific uh, endpoints, parameters? Uh, where we uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so the type of inputs that we would consider is yes. What is the what is that scientific question that we're looking mm. to, to resolve? What what are those outcomes that are important to us for a particular product or for a particular disease that we're looking to target? Um, really in a very holistic way. It's also when you think through to who's consuming this data at the end of the day, uh, thinking of um, what outcomes would be uh, most likely to maybe promote a better marketing strategy or to uh, show that the product performs better than other products that are currently on the market. So that is at the macro level. And then at the more specific, I would say uh, the main inputs would be things like, what is my expected sample size for the study? Uh, what is the amount, what is the duration of time I have to wait before I can have an interim analysis? When is it, um, when is the best opportunity for me to do an interim analysis and see some of those interim results to, to inform some other decision during the study? Um, so it really runs the gamut uh, and it, um, with all of the new methodologies that are popping up all over the place, over time, um, biostatistics has really become this very rich and fertile ground for adaptations in those studies. So anything that you can think of in that realm is really what we're looking to uh, incorporate into that model. Well, there are a lot of different factors that can be incorporated in these models then. And uh, very key to both, I imagine, uh, the clinical trials themselves, but also, as you mentioned, uh, how do we position this product in the market? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that is key. And that is something that is sometimes missing. Um, and we see that with, you know, large and small organizations where um, there are some natural silos, I would say, I think that's pretty well known. It's not uh, my own critique of no. the industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, really, when you think of the R&D groups within, um, within a pharmaceutical company, um, and maybe the regulatory affairs, and then separately from that is the marketing arm and the market access arm and reimbursement, health technology assessments, and the, and so on. And so oftentimes when a trial is designed in a particular way, the constraints are really within the biostatistical realm, perhaps with medical affairs, with your clinicians, or even um, with the people who forecast your enrollment for the study. Uh, but not many times do you really get that crossover with the marketing side to ensure that the level of the data that you're generating is sufficient uh, to make some of those decisions. And so oftentimes, 
sometimes when you get to that marketing stage, to that market access stage, additional information has to be collected either through real world evidence or maybe some follow on studies um, to ensure a proper uh, market access positioning for that product. And, and Boris, is it new that biostatisticians are involved in these later stages or have they always been involved? Uh, so to my knowledge, there's been very little involvement in between the, the two kind of main silos, if you will. Uh, and what part of the vision of products like Solara, which is one of our software solutions here at Cytel, um, one of the visions that came along with it is this idea of being able to bring more people, giving more people a seat at the table during mm -hmm. trial design so that we're bringing in the voice of the clinician, the voice of uh, those um, uh, clinical operations teams, um, as well as market access and those uh, other considerations and bringing them all to the same table and having those conversations conversations early on, plus that ability to then simulate at a large scale all of those different inputs kind of where we hope uh, ensures uh, not only a more robust design, a more kind of optimized design for execution purposes, but then also for that uh, data generation and the use of the data later on. Mm. And you mentioned a couple of times this at scale uh, part. H how big of a scale are we talking about and why is that important? <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so scale can mean different things um, to your point. So one uh, way we can think about that scale is the variations in the different inputs into my study. It is also the scale in terms of the breadth of the uncertainties that I'm injecting into that model around my treatment effect, my even my control effect or my enrollment. Um, so those two things add to that scale and that uh, within software like Solara, we call these models, right? A particular mm -hmm. trial design against a particular execution scenario, all those things that we can affect versus all of those things that are outside of our control. And then the other way in which this is scalable is the amount of uh, simulation that we run for each one of these models. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of um, kind of your general statistics, the more times you repeat that uh, that simulation, this calculation of your study, um, the the more confidence you can have in the in the kind of outcome of the, the likelihood of the outcome of your study. And so uh, within a software like East, certainly software such as Solara, you have the ability to repeat the study a thousand times, ten thousand times, a hundred thousand times to reach a more and more fine statistical analysis of that likelihood of the outcome. Mm -hmm. Within Solara, what is unique is that you're able to take all of those, the three dimensions of that scale as I described it, and put them all together at the same time. And oftentimes uh, I end up with um, kind of what I call design areas, if you will, of uh, that are the result of millions, uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of simulated trials. So those are the outputs from software like that. Hmm. I would be curious to kind of dive into if we if we run simulations multiple times that must give us some sort of range of uh, potential uh, decisions that we can make uh, and how we can design our trials um, many of the executives that we have in pharmaceutical companies have been uh, executives in the pharmaceutical industry for a very long time uh, and I'm maybe you're not the right person to ask this but are they ready to make decisions that are more based on potentialities uh, rather than certainties or best practice? 
I think everybody is interested in certainties, but uh, we know in this industry that uncertainty is kind of part of part of the routine, if you will. I would say that most of the time the results of these simulations are expressed as averages. And again, mm. the more repetitions you have, the closer you are to a, a likelihood that this outcome is correct. And so I think uh, many executives, many um, people sitting on governance committees making those decisions about which trials would move forward and which designs to select, I think they are very comfortable with this idea of an average uh, based on simulation. And I think they're even more confident when you're considering a range of likely outcomes and not a single outcome. And so mm. perhaps in the past, when a, 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 trial, a particular trial was being designed, it was being designed with one treatment effect in mind. And that was... Mm. You know, I'm expecting such and such treatment effects. So I need these many patients to reach this power to power my study, you know, at the, a particular level. Um, and so nowadays, uh, we know that there's a lot more uncertainty around that uh, eventual treatment effect and being able to use the simulation power to uh, get closer to that likelihood, I think, is something that um, it, in general, uh, people are very comfortable with. Mm. What about our uh, regulatory authority friends? Uh, are are they interested in in this way of uh, modeling trials? What are they saying? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, again, uh, Monte Carlo simulation has been around for um, several decades. East Cytel's mm -hmm. uh, uh, flagship software has been around for over thirty years and is used by regulators uh, to. Um, Uh, ensure that the trials that are being submitted to them are uh, are functional, are, are optimal to a certain degree, um, or that they make sense. So I think regulators are certainly uh, comfortable with the idea of um, simulation. Um, whether or not the, um, there's a, a good understanding of that combination of simulating at scale um, and simulating Um, not just a single trial, but looking at a wider design space. That's, I think, the area that most of our clients struggle with, and to some extent, perhaps the regulator as well. Although I'm not, I'm not certain about that. Mm. I, I kind of want to dive into Solara that you were talking about. Can you tell us more about? I, I would be interested in the history of the solution. What did it come about to do? Uh, what does it do now? How has it evolved? How is it being used? Absolutely. Um, so I would say, um, again, Saitel has been in this business of clinical trial design, adaptive design and methodology for over 30 years. And early on, um, we developed the software called EAST, which uh, was modular, modularized. It grew over time. Um, and EAST is uh, very widely accepted across the industry. Um, and then in the past five or six years or so, uh, I think there's there was a growing realization that simulating um at a large a larger scale than what east can allow us uh, really opens many different doors and we can spend a little bit more time about why i think this is such a great idea but east used to be a desktop uh, application which means you were using your own computer's power or your company's server power to run those simulations And I think from some of my colleagues, I hear that uh, finding that computational power could be very difficult sometimes uh, in a larger organization. And um, Monte Carlo simulation does require quite a bit of computational power. So the first thing that Solara provides for us is that uh, computational power in the cloud. Mm. In the cloud is maybe a nice way of saying somebody else's computer. But, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um But uh, essentially, it is connected to, uh, I believe at this point, up to 200,000 um, cores of computers. Oh. 
uh, in the cloud, which means that if I'm designing a trial with when I'm requiring uh, 10 million simulation runs, um, Solara will fire up as many of those cores as are necessary to run that design quickly. So whereas in the past that might have taken us a few days, maybe overnight to receive some results from a simulation run like that, Solara can handle that within 15 to 30 minutes, maybe at most. Um, oh. Usually. I mean, simulation runs are between 10 and 20 minutes, I would say, depending on, on the scale. Um, so Solara essentially took the idea of EAST, which is very advanced adaptive methodology, placed it in the cloud using that cloud computing power to run those simulations very quickly. And then from there, we also expanded into a newer and more complex methodologies that are not necessarily currently available in EAST. Mm. So we're providing a wider kind of variation in methodologies, that computing power. And the, the last uh, thing that I would say is a little bit different is the um, ability to visualize and communicate results of those mm. simulations to that wider audience. So those people outside of your biostatistics team who may be stakeholders, who may have interests, uh, we have different ways to visualize the data, uh, discuss trade-off, discuss uh, what optimal means, right? There's different ways to define what optimal is. Um, so all of those things are available within the software. And I think those are the three kind of main areas. Um, mm. Super interesting. I, I'm also interested to learn more about adaptive clinical trial design in general. Uh, because the way that uh, I've been following it this so far is that we are getting more types of trials. We're trying more things. Uh, maybe you could take us through, well, how are we seeing uh, clinical trial design itself evolving? Absolutely. So um, over the past few decades, I think we started with these very kind of plain designs, right? Those two arm designs with comparative designs uh, start to finish. We're not looking at any data in the interim. We're just waiting for those final results. There's a big reveal and we were either successful or we failed. Anything that comes beyond that in my mind is adaptive. So introducing an interim analysis to your study, um, introducing uh, the ability to uh, either enrich your, um, your, your sample size to a particular subgroup of patients or just increasing the sample size for the entire population of your study is another kind of adaptation. Um, also, newer ways, I would say, of dealing with multiplicity in your study. So whether it is multiple arms or multiple endpoints, which are becoming more and more popular and multiple endpoints really speaks more again to that piece of how do we make this marketable, right? If mm -hmm. I can show statistical significance on multiple endpoints, not just uh, say in an oncology trial, not just overall survival or progression-free survival, if I can also show statistical significance on quality of life outcomes for the patient, that sometimes gives you that edge in getting that market approval, that reimbursement approval at the end. So um, those adaptations go beyond just the you know, what happens with, between two arms in a study. So it's dealing with multiplicity. Uh, and also more recently, uh, looking at things like basket trials, looking at platform trials. Um, we have several um, um, uh, kind of uh, experts uh, within our team who work on platform trials and, and designs. And those are very intricate, very complex. In the future of Solara, we are looking to incorporate those types of designs as well. Uh, but today, uh, th those are not part of the software. I just wanted to make mm. that clear. Uh, but yeah, adaptation really runs the gamut, I would say. And when we talk about adaptive trials, 
does that mean we can adapt them as we go or meaning that we adapt them before we start them? Good question. Um, in general, uh, you have to have your study approved by the regulator before you start the trial. And so any adaptation that you're proposing has to be built into your statistical mm. protocols before you hit the ground running. So you may say, I want to have an interim analysis. And then you specify in that interim analysis, I will stop for early efficacy but it's this particular boundary uh, that I'm going to declare success or I'm going to stop the trial for futility, but you have to declare in advance what that boundary would be for that futility decision, if you will. So you um, you can pre-specify adaptations, but mm-hmm. um, if the study is already ongoing, it is much more difficult to make those changes and you often have to go back to the regulator to receive approval for any kind of uh, statistical protocol uh, changes. Oh, that, that makes sense. Uh, if we talk about multiple endpoints that we're trying to uh, measure in the same trial, I'm again mm-hmm. curious about the involvement of, for example, market access or uh, HOR in the trial design. Uh, because, uh, for example, the quality of life scores, that would be something that we uh, would mainly use for regulatory or for reimbursement purposes later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does this change the dynamics of who makes decisions about the trial design? Yeah, we're seeing very early signs that certain companies and certain certain therapeutic areas, I say, are, are more susceptible to this. So if I'm thinking of uh, kind of inflammatory diseases where we're dealing with many different scales to measure either disease progression or uh, response and so on, or quality of life, uh, where you have a situation where there's multiple scales, that's where we're seeing more and more interest with multiple endpoints. Uh, because again, the more you can show statistical significance on, on many of those endpoints, points, the, the likelier you are to your point to receive that reimbursement decision. And depending on the country that you're applying in or the, the agency that you're appealing to, um, some favor certain outcomes over others. Uh, so at that point, having that seat at the table with the biostatistician early on is where it's most important. Um, and it's also, I guess, very dependent on um, the amount of investment that the company, the manufacturer is willing to make in that clinical trial. Because once you start including more than one or two endpoints, uh, you really have to enroll many more patients to your trial to, um, to get to that finer uh, kind of certain smaller endpoints, if you will, down the line as you're using your um, your statistical power to make those determinations. Mm. If we are... Is this is this something that has already kind of been implemented in our industry, or are we still in different stages depending on the company for for how uh, how well we do uh, with trying to model our trials? Yeah, I think uh, in general, all uh, again, uh, Monte Carlo simulation is something that's very uh, accepted across the industry. Um, I think uh, many, you know, there are many tools, there are many um, uh, ways in which you can simulate studies or design studies. Certainly very uh, common around the industry is using R code um, Mm. as a way to simulate and design trials. Um, I would say that software out of uh, of the box, such as uh, Solara or EAST, has the benefit of um, sort of tested code. So you don't have to start coding every time you want to run a trial. You can just take the solution and and run with it. Um, In other ways, uh, software can be 
less flexible than coding. If you're looking to adapt in a very specific way, maybe some cutting mm. edge methodology. Um, and so there's always this cusp uh, between, you know, using software out of, a, of the box because it's simpler, um, it's certainly faster. And again, using those cloud resources uh, and that ability to change uh, minor little areas. Um, so I do see a wide use of software, especially our software across the industry. Um, but uh, in terms of thinking about it in a wider scale, in that larger scale that I was mentioning before, I think that's the part that we're still kind of opening people's eyes to uh, mm -hmm. to understand the benefits, really, of simulating at that large scale. And besides having software, either flexible software that you code yourself or standard software, what other things would you need to have in place to have a successful uh, modeling department or area? Yeah, um, so I, I would say most importantly would be the inputs to your uh, to that model that you're that you're trying to simulate. So right, we we always say what the, the quality of what you put in is what you get out. Yes. Um, so having a good that was a that was a very clean way of saying that, wasn't it? That was very. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> Um, so, um, you know, having a good understanding of what your uh, competitor or the best supportive care on the market is that you're probably going to run up against is very important. And like, having a good understanding of how your product, uh, you know, operates in the world, if you will, how, how your mm. product affects uh, patients before you go into the trial, the more information you have, the better. And then in terms of applying that Monte Carlo simulation, being able to do it thoughtfully um, and in a sensitive way to make sure that you're designing a trial that lives up to those expectations. And how fast does the methodology in this space move and, and who drives innovation in the methodology? That's an interesting question. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg. So I would say that, um, uh, you know, I've worked in different areas of uh, pharmaceutical uh, drug development. I, I worked in market access, HEOR, also in real world evidence. Uh, and of all of those, I would say biostatistics is um, maybe maybe runner up is also real world evidence, but uh, very academic in nature and very collaborative in nature. And that is something that I really love about this part of the industry is that there's uh, always room for a very open and honest conversation about methods, about how to do things better, about how to be more accurate. Um, and so that's an, an area that I really um, really appreciate. And I think uh, a lot of the methods uh, nowadays come either from within industry, so being developed by some of the foremost biostatisticians working in different uh, pharmaceutical companies, also from academia, and in some instances also um, from within uh, providers of software such as ourselves. So, for example, um, uh, sample size um, uh, re-estimation or promising zone. Um, so thinking of um, uh, promising zone methodology was something that was created by one of the founders of Cytel, Cyrus Meta. He was one of the foremost uh, kind of writers of some of the seminal papers that have led us to promising zone uh, types of design. And mm -hmm. so um, it really comes from all of those areas. And then it's all, always a question of Who's going to apply it first? Who's going to try and implement this in a clinical trial and see if the regulator is accepting it, right? Um, but there too, I think that collaborative nature, that academic nature um, really helps uh, the entire biostatistics community to bring some of these methods to the fore because oftentimes the FDA or other regulators will be part of that conversation, would be part of seminars and um, academic kind of uh, symposia where these methods are being discussed. So I, I see it as a very kind of 
collaborative uh, effort, I would say. Mm. That makes sense. Are there any disease areas where there's more reason uh, to try different simulations than others? I think you need to simulate it all in, in any mm. case. Uh, it's not a particular to a therapeutic area uh, because that same uh, uncertainty and the need for that same likelihood of certain outcomes is prevalent across uh, all therapeutic areas. I say I would say that the um, the level of rigor that is required from for designing a phase three study is, uh, you know, some much higher threshold than maybe designing a phase one study that is might not be comparative or a phase two that might employ only a few patients. And so the stakes get higher and higher as you're uh, reaching those different phases of development. Mm -hmm. And simulation has space in all of them. But I would uh, definitely say in that phase three is where you would have like the, the highest cost maybe or cost savings from optimizing uh, in a particular way. Mm. And Boris, you have seen different kinds of functions. You mentioned real-world evidence, market access, HOR, uh, biostatistics. I would be curious to learn your perspective about, well, what are some of the misunderstandings these different areas have about each other? Uh, and what are some of the like friction points between them? Interesting. Uh, I may start a war with some of my friends. <laughs> Wait, this is not a fair question. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it friction. I think they mm. work on a continuum, right? Mm. There's a continuum of of, of uh, drug development, design, even early on, kind of like uh, even selecting certain compounds to develop over others. So it's a very complex system. Um, I think the the misunderstandings happen when maybe uh, some data was already generated, a trial was completed. And then it, it's thrown over to the other side, right? To the to mm. that market marketing side, and um, then there's this realization: oh, this is not enough for us, or it's enough for certain countries, maybe, and not others, or um, it's not enough of a difference in terms of the treatment effect to be better than what's on the market already. So it. Uh, it changes the way they can can market and can think through how to get reimbursed for that um, drug. So if there was any friction, I would say it's that. But again, I think um, pharma has adapted to generate additional evidence uh, in addition to that clinical trial. So it's not the only point of evidence that they're using to reach market access. Uh, that's not to say that there's not space for the two to interact even more. And again, that's one of the main rationales for designing uh, software such as Solara. Mm. Well, that, that makes sense. Uh, and Boaz, how did you get into life sciences in the first place? What was your journey? <laughs> An odd journey, for sure. Um, I uh, actually, my undergraduate uh, degree is in uh, history of medicine. I've always been interested nice. in medicine um, and history, and that was great. Yeah. But I realized very quickly that I would not um, be a very successful historian. So I went back to grad school and um, studied um, uh, um, health insurance markets and mm. how our medicine is paid for. And this is in the time of Obamacare. So I'm, I'll be dating myself now. Um, <laughs> 10 years ago is when I graduated. And um, so the I, I really thought I would uh, go into some sort of a nonprofit helping match people with health insurance uh, mm. markets. Uh, in the United States. And um, that didn't happen. I was hired by a startup that was in the market access uh, health technology assessment space, um, uh, kind of helping put together uh, all of the an analysis that was needed to make um, 
fair decisions around health technology assessment. So I kind of was th uh, thrown into this world of um, clinical trials and um, uh, marketing uh, medicine and bringing it to patients across the world. And I just fell in love with it. So mm -hmm. um, I, and then slowly kind of migrated my way across the uh, evidence uh, generation sort of cycle, if you will. So I feel very privileged that I've had the opportunity, um, at least so far, um, to uh, really get interested and learn on the job a lot of these different aspects of uh, epidemiology, biostatistics, mm -hmm. and even uh, kind of marketing of medicine. But that's a great background to have, like the history of medicine, uh, because understanding where we come from as an industry and where like some of the ideas we had about treatment before uh, makes it so much easier to understand well, how have we evolved from that. I think that's a super interesting area. Thank you. Yes, I agree. And I think one of the most interesting things that you learn when you get into that health technology assessment and market access world is how different countries value medicine differently. Mm. Yes. Uh, and it's it's embedded in the way that they choose to reimburse certain medicines over others. And you can really see trends, not only, you know, Nordic countries versus the rest or but each country has their own mechanism of evaluating and valuing a particular medicine. And I think it's very telling about that country's culture, its people and how they value their their health and their medicines. To me, that's very fascinating. Yeah, that that is very interesting. Um when we when we first met, I was actually surprised that Cytel uh, has software offerings. I was not aware. I was always thinking Cytel of uh, more of a, a provider of people who do statistical programming uh, or statistical programming services. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I, you've also mentioned that it's actually had software products for quite a while. Uh, so is there anything else I don't know about Cytel that you want to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> so I would say um, you're right about all of those offerings. Uh, Cytel is the largest provider of uh, programming, biostatistics services, and software in the world. It's just that we're such a niche market that uh, mm -hmm. oftentimes people, you know, we could be the biggest in your own little party, right? I'm a legend in my own living room, but it doesn't <laughs> But it, um, it it maybe not, doesn't translate in that way. So it's interesting that you say that. But um, in addition to our software offerings, which were actually the the um, the start of the company was uh, in generating these types of um, Monte Carlo simulations. I think at the time it was using um, C plus C plus um, plus. Mm. Um, I forget. Uh, which uh, languages were used um, for some of the earlier um, um, uh, software that uh, that we've developed here at Cytel. Uh, but as you've mentioned, statistical programming, um, also um, kind of a functional service provider, if you will. So helping uh, life sciences augment uh, their, um, their biostatistics departments with uh, some of our own um, employees, also real-world analytics and real-world evidence, uh, as well as some market access and HEOR uh, capabilities over the years. And, and one other area that I think is very interesting is um, uh, a data, um, data monitoring committees. So uh, yeah. part of Cytel also provides the professionals who sit on data monitoring committees and perform those analyses in, in the interim yeah. uh, or what have you and help shepherd that trial through. So we're one of the biggest providers of data management um, as well. Um, I think that I did not know. Yes, so we do a lot. Of, we do a lot of things. Uh, it is really I'm, I'm this one little department of software, but uh, yeah, we do many, many different things. Well, 
Boaz, we are going to start drawing to a close. And I'm going to ask you the question that I ask uh, all of our guests on the show. Uh, and that is if we, we gave you the Transformation Trials Magic Wand that has the ability to change one thing in our industry, uh, what would you wish for? And I can only pick one, right? You can only pick one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think as we've kind of had this conversation and we've uh, we've already discussed what a complex industry it is and how hard it is to bring uh, a drug to market, I think it would be uh, wonderful if everybody who's engaged in this process uh, across the, the evidence generation kind of cycle uh, was able to take a, a step back from their work because oftentimes we're so busy in that moment designing that particular trial or doing that particular task. Um, and just take a step back and a deep breath and appreciate um, the beauty of the work that we do and uh, appreciate the moment, how momentous it is that we're able to bring these uh, drugs to market eventually and help all of those patients. And I think oftentimes we are so bogged down with our daily kind of tasks that we don't take a moment to appreciate how momentous that is. So that's my, mm. my wish. But as soon as that is done, everybody needs to go back to work. <laughs> Absolutely. But but you're right. We are not great at kind of pausing. It's always, there's always the next trial. There's always the next deadline. There's always the mm -hmm. next drug or molecule that we need to develop. Um, I, I love that wish. I hope it comes true. Thank you. Uh, Boaz, uh, if our listeners have follow-up questions or like to learn more about what you do or settle, where can they reach out? Um. Uh, my email address is my name. It's just boaz.adler at cytel.com. Uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn. You can stop by Dallas. I'll show you around. <laughs> I, mean, I live in Dallas, Texas. Uh, happy to show people around my my town, my adopted hometown. Uh, but uh, seriously, LinkedIn or email is uh, is just fine. That's uh, that's awesome. Well, Boaz, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Same, and thank you for having me. to Transformation in Trials. If you have a suggestion for a guest for our show, reach out to Sam Parnell or Ivana Rosendale on LinkedIn. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or in any other player. Remember to subscribe and get the episodes hot off the editor.